Please turn with me in the book of Revelation to the fifth chapter. Revelation chapter 5, we will begin reading in verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. We have been at uh, some length of consideration in the incense prayers of the saints. And now we turn our attention to something that... Um, is certainly no less interesting, but perhaps a bit more difficult. The harps and the new song and what this might teach us about our worship of the living God. I thought at this point we might back up first to some general considerations. And if I might, to some pastoral reflections on the development of our congregation. When I first came here to Northern Virginia, I would say that the congregation treated its worship as a strange thing, as a peculiar thing, almost as if we were not at home with it. Let me try to explain a little bit of what I meant Members of the, of the congregation would treat our worship as if we were doing something uh, strange, 
something off with the expectation that it would be off-putting to anyone who visited us. This came to be a strange perspective to me because in some ways our worship is about as Catholic as you can imagine. And there I mean Catholic with the small c and in the good sense, universal. Most anywhere you go, you will find, at least in any Christian, uh, any church communion that calls itself Christian, you will find Bible reading, preaching, and the uh, receptive hearing of the reading and the preaching. If we are different in this regard, it's probably just in the length as well as the subject matter. But uh, most anywhere you go, you'll have reading, preaching, and the hearing of God's Word. Prayer, once again, we're probably only strange in length. Sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, nothing peculiar there. And even our service of song is about as Catholic as you can imagine. Again, almost all communions that call themselves Christian will sing the songs. And most do sing the songs at some point or psalm portions. Denominations will have their peculiar songs. The Arminians won't sing the Calvinist songs and the Calvinists won't sing the Arminian songs. And so those become a principle of difference among them. But almost everybody will sing the psalms as we do. In some ways, our worship is only peculiar in that it's lacking peculiarity. It's, uh, we don't have any interpretive dance or drama, no strange charismatic experiences or rites. We are only distinctive in our complete lack of distinctives in this regard. As I began to come to terms with this, I stopped thinking of our worship as being strange. I know that it is different from the worship as practiced by uh, other people, but only different in the sense that we lack differences or peculiarities. We have only the common things. From the perspective of others, People who come from broadly evangelical uh, circles to visit our church, they will probably find our service of song to be the most peculiar thing about us. And I can think of probably three ways. We certainly spend less time with it than what you are likely to run into in broadly evangelical circles. I do remember after my own conversion to Jesus Christ, I did not know very much, but I knew that I was supposed to be going to church. And so I simply went to the church that was closest to me. It was uh, a broadly evangelical mega church, thousands of members, multiple services. And uh, the services probably lasted about an hour and a half. And probably the first 45 or 50 minutes of that was the music. And it was quite an elaborate production with very skilled musicians, but it went on and on. You come to our own Westminster directory for public worship, 
And at the beginning, they mentioned the singing of the psalm. It seems to be singular. And then at the end of the worship service, it says, and another psalm, if with conveniency it may be done. So you see there a comparative lack of emphasis and focus upon it. Is this intentional? I think so. Just something for you to think about and to consider. Remember the Reformed churches were always word-centered. Everything, all of the ordinances of worship flowed out of the ministry of the word. So the reading and preaching of God's word was always central. It received the prime focus and always the greatest amount of time because of that. And so we ask the question, what is the proper proportion between the word and the service of song? I'm not sure that there is a particular and definite answer to that, but I do think that our Reformed forebears were attempting to put them in their proper perspective and uh, relationship. I don't necessarily want to focus on that issue. It's just one way in which we are different. But our text does bump up against two other issues where we are thought to be different. First of all, with respect to the content of the service of song, we only sing the songs. This seems strange to people. Even though in almost all of their churches, they will sing the psalms as well. As part of most of the great hymn books, of the Protestants, you will find psalms, plenty of psalms. And also, it will seem strange that we don't use any musical instruments. I say our text bumps up against both of these, because what is the significance of the fact that the four living creatures and the 24 elders are portrayed as having harps? And what's the significance of the fact that they are portrayed as singing a new song? Before coming to that, I, I did want to address some other things which remain a point of concern for me. Even when we come to the consideration of these matters, it's important that we not lose our theological balance and that we strive after a measure of uh, maturity by maintaining the balance. These topics are interesting, and I know distinctives or points of controversy and difference are always interesting to us. Sometimes in a healthy way, sometimes in an unhealthy way. Healthy when we are wondering, well, what does God say about these things? And how can we know? We want to hear the voice of the shepherd. Believe and do the right things. This is healthy. Sometimes it's unhealthy. We can become controversialists. We become fascinated with the fight which arises out of the contentious nature of fallen uh, humanity. So I, I did think it would be good to uh, consider a few things. With respect to balance, on the one hand, these issues are important. The worship of God and how we worship God in the concrete is a matter of importance. And I might say every word of God, every scripture truth is important. It was one of those life-changing utterances years ago. And I, I frequently had heard this about various issues. Uh, an issue would come up and uh, 
quickly evangelicals would set it to the side. It's not something that's discussed very much in God's word or it's only discussed one time. And so these things were sort of put off to the side. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul and it changed my life forever. He said, how many times does the Most High God need to say something before it is becoming for the creature to listen and give his attention? Well, the answer is obvious. He only needs to speak just the one time. And then it's important for us to listen. Every word of God is important. And these are important issues. That's the one side of the balance. On the other side of the balance, we have to recognize that these issues have a relative importance. Christianity is a system of truth. And the individual truths stand in a relative uh, system of importance one toward another. I'll give you some of my own experience on how people lose their balance in this way. I do remember uh, one acquaintance that I had, a, a fellow pastor. When he would describe our kinds of churches, he would say it like this. We are an exclusive psalmist, no musical instrument, head-covering, establishmentarian church. I sympathize in some ways with the uh, economy of words. You want to say what, uh, what makes us different. And so he would describe our churches by all of the distinctive differences. So, you know, I sympathize in some ways with the economy of words. To say Presbyterian is to say next to nothing. If you tell somebody you're a Presbyterian, they'll no doubt associate you with the large liberal denomination. You could say Reformed, but uh, there won't be very many, except in Reformed circles, who even know what that means. So I, I do sympathize with the, with the economy of words. Don't get me wrong. But we have to have a care here, don't we? I hope that Christ and the gospel are ever the focus. And it's easy to lose the focus, even in right contending for true things. And in that we lose our balance. Turn with me to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15. My point here is that we lose our balance if we don't esteem, if we don't see the relative importance of truths. We assert truth truly only when we assert those truths in their proper proportion and in their proper biblical emphases. If uh, another way to say this may be in the concrete is if in our midst the sum total of conversation amounted to something like psalmody, the lack of musical instruments, head coverings, and establishmentarianism, we will have lost our balance, as true as all of those things might be. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that, that which I also received. Uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
want you to notice those words, first of all. I delivered unto you, first of all. The truth concerning Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That first of all there does not likely refer to chronological order, although it might. In other words, the, the point here that Paul makes in the broader context doesn't seem to be, these were the first things I said to you. Although that might be true. That doesn't seem to be his point here. His point here seems to be first with respect to importance. I delivered unto you as the most important things that Christ was crucified for sins, buried, and rose again for our justification. And Paul, in his ministry, always majored upon the major things and minored upon the minor. And in that, there is a theological balance that has to be maintained. It is only when we achieve that balance that we will achieve a theological maturity, where we see not only the truth, but the relationship between truths and their relative importance one to another. We will be mature when we uh, maintain biblical truths in their proper emphases. And more than that, if I might go a little bit further, uh, you've frequently heard me say it, but I, I want to say it again because it's of su such importance. Things like the singing of the Psalms and the use of musical instruments will only become lively doctrine when you see these things in their connection to Christ and the Gospel. If you don't see that connection, these things will still be true, and they will fascinate the mind, but they will never grip the heart and become living things, living doctrines. So we always have to ask the question, what does all of this have to do with Jesus Christ? What does it have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with the way of everlasting life? I bring all of this up not to, uh, not to censure you in any manner or degree, but rather to encourage you. In our former condition, and for those of you that go back with me uh, to my first arrival here, you can consider the things that I say and measure it against your own experience. Here I speak of my own experience and my own estimation of the way that things were with us in the beginning. If I might say so, and you might not have experienced this, but you do have to remember I knew each one of the members of the congregation intimately. I think it's altogether fair to say that there was a level of embarrassment over our distinctives. In spite of the fact that we embraced them, there was a level of embarrassment, particularly with respect to the service of song. At that time, I would say that we understood our distinctives less clearly. But paradoxically and almost strangely, we talked about them a lot more. So there was a lot of talking, less understanding, and a level of embarrassment. And we used to have something happen regularly at that time that almost never happens now. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's happened in a long time. We used to have people that um, would visit our assembly and quite literally afterwards flee from the building. Flee. 
In other words, I, I couldn't get to the back fast enough to head some of them off as they fled from the back of the building to get a, to get a word with. And part of it was the awkwardness of we didn't understand these things very well. And we talked about them a lot in a nervous and embarrassed manner. And the net effect upon visitors, they would evacuate the building afterwards. This has not happened in a long time. I think that there are some spiritual reasons for it as well. You always have to remember that the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ hear his voice. You can have the true thing, but still not be able to communicate it as the voice of the living Savior. And Christian people won't want to have anything to do with it. It'll seem strange to them and off-putting. And they will flee in, this, uh, in that sort of way. But in our current condition, I think that things have been very much improved. And that's why I say I want to encourage you. I no longer sense any embarrassment about these things. And I certainly don't feel any myself. Interestingly enough, we don't talk about these distinctives as much. It does seem to me, you'll have to judge for yourself, that we talk much more about the Lord and about the gospel. And for this, I'm very glad. But again, paradoxically, it seems to me that there are great, there's a great, greater level of understanding of our distinctives. So great, much greater command of the truths, but less conversation and more direct conversation about the Lord. And our visitors don't flee from us anymore. I think all of this is a sign that we're growing as a congregation in theological maturity. These are just my own pastoral observations. But if these things be right, I, I do think we have reason to be encouraged that we are growing in the Lord. Having said those things, we return to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Remember, uh, John has been gazing into the holy place, that hidden spiritual life of the church. He sees in that place the four living creatures, the, minister, the ministers and officers of the church, together with the 24 priest kings, the representatives of all God's people. They are present there and they are worshiping. In their hands, we find in the one hand, incense bowls representative, representing their prayers. And in the other hand, we find uh, harps. Now here at this point, I give you something of a doctrinal teaser. Where we're going and the questions we're going to seek to answer. When you look at the... Discussion, the theological conversation that surrounds the exclusive use of the Psalms and the non-use of musical instruments. This is a, a relatively favorite uh, text of those that oppose these doctrines and practices. And they do something like this. When we see in the hands of the people of God harps, does this not warrant us in the use of musical instruments? Or to put it, uh, or same sort of idea, but different issue. 
When they are said to sing a new song, and then that new song is not any one of the biblical songs, doesn't this warrant us in the composition and use of uh, hymns, uninspired hymnody? To answer this uh, question in a satisfying way, we're going to have to take a much larger view both with respect to principles as well as the Bible history of the service of song. I do hope that it was helpful for you when we, you remember in the treatment of the incense bowls, we took a step back and we took a larger view of the service of incense and its significance. We're going to do a similar thing with respect to song. And this brings us to uh, some broader meditations upon the service of song. And before we start here, we have to start with the regulative principle of worship. And here immediately I I come upon another point of what I think is very sound advice. God's people always need to be instructed line upon line and precept upon precept. And as it applies here, No one can understand the issues that pertain to exclusive psalmody or the use or not using of musical instrument until they have a strong command of the regulative principle of worship. And notice that I say they're a strong command. There are many that think that they embrace the regulative principle, but there's something in it like conceptual slippage. And I'll even try to point out some ways that you can detect it, both in your own mind And when you're talking to others. But the simple fact of the matter is nobody will ever understand why you only use the Psalms in worship until they understand the regulative principle. It simply won't make any sense. Let me give you a popular definition of the regulative principle of worship. And then what I think is an even superior way of framing it. I call it the mosaic definition. But the popular way of framing this, which is helpful, uh, would be this. With respect to the worship of God, if it is not commanded, then it is forbidden. Again, so this is not with respect to everything, mind you. It's with respect to the worship of God. If it is not commanded, then it is forbidden. The Mosaic definition is the same thing conceptually, but sometimes to say the same things in other words can be very helpful. With respect to worship, we do all that God commands without subtraction and without addition. So it's to say the same thing, but in different words. So when God commands with respect to worship, we do what he said. We don't take anything away from it and we don't add anything to it. We do it exactly as he has said. Interestingly enough, with respect to most evangelicals, they would grant that we're not to subtract anything. So if God says preach, they would say, by all means, we we have to preach. The controversy really comes over, can human beings warrantably and lawfully add things to the worship of God that he has not commanded? That's really the point of controversy. And if we're going to understand the regulative principle... We have to be very sharp and very sound at that point. In your outline, I tried to do something um, 
that I hope will be helpful to contrast the regulative principle of worship with what you might call the broader system of Christian ethics. Most issues in Christian ethics uh, have uh, three categories. So you might say the broad field of Christian ethics, generally speaking, is a three-category system. You have things that are commanded. Those would be things that must be done. You have things that are forbidden things that must not be done, and things indifferent in and of themselves. The old word for that is adiaphora, things that in and of themselves are indifferent. You can do it or not do it. So let me, if you look at your chart, let me give you, give you a couple of examples of how this works. With respect to things commanded positively, you might think of the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. This is a duty commanded, a thing that must be done. With respect to a thing forbidden, you might think of the worship of God by means of a graven image. This is a thing that must not be done. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor worship them. With respect to a thing indifferent, you might think of the eating of shellfish or the drinking of wine. In and of themselves, these things are indifferent. You can either do it or not do it. Although there I offer it with a caution. Most things indifferent, and notice the language, indifferent in and of itself. When you put it into a context, suddenly takes on moral import. So, for example, in and of itself, the drinking of wine is indifferent. But if you imprudently uh, partake in the drinking of wine to the disruption of Christian fellowship and relationships, it now has a moral bearing because of the general law of charity. You used a thing indifferently in a sinful, an indifferent thing in a sinful manner. But there are things that are indifferent in and of themselves, and Paul makes that very clear. So this is the general system of Christian ethics. Understand that if a Christian person thinks of worship in this way, he will never understand anything that you say with respect to psalmody or the use or not use of musical instruments. So in other words, if it's a three-category system, he'll never understand what you're saying. If he's thinking of it in that way, your worship will seem alien and strange. The regulative principle of worship is a two-category system. Two categories and only two. Things commanded and things forbidden. Two categories. So let's do a little exercise in the, in the chart. Last week, we looked at a thing commanded, prayer. You will not have fulfilled your duty to worship God if you are prayerless in that duty. This is a duty that must be done, a thing that must be done. As individuals and as a body, we are never free to omit this. It is a positive duty, a thing that must be done. In the... Uh, category of things forbidden, things 
Now here, note I say, things expressly forbidden in the word of God, we are told never to worship by a graven image. So here you have an express prohibition of this behavior. But there are also things that are forbidden implicitly because they've not been commanded. You might think of a drama or an interpretive dance, things that are very uh, popular now in broader evangelical circles. This could not fall into the commanded category, so what category does it fall into? The forbidden category. Now you see how evangelicals become confused because there's no express prohibition of the performing of a drama or an interpretive dance, they move it into the, a, a third category of permitted or allowed because it's not expressly forbidden. But the regulative principle is, is a two-category system. And if it can't fit in the commanded category, it then fits in the forbidden category. And so that can be either expressly or implicitly. I remember um, having a conversation with a with a good Christian brother not not too long ago. I think at the beginning we were hoping to talk about uh, psalmody, or at least I was hoping to get there eventually. He believes in the regulative principle, or so he thinks. So I started back with the regulative principle, and so we talked about the regulative principle, and his understanding seemed. To be sound. He knew all the words. If it's not commanded, then it's forbidden. But here's how I detected that he didn't understand it yet. And so there was no point in any conversation about psalmody. I can't remember exactly what uh, practice of worship we had come to talk about, but it, some practice came up. And he said, I believe that it is permitted to us. And there was the conceptual slippage. With respect to worship, it is either must or must not. There's no third ca category of optional things that are indifferent in and of themselves. So prayer is a must. Idols are a must not. And if it cannot fall in the must category, then it falls in the must not category. If I might um, give you a little bit of my own personal history I hope I don't embarrass my my wife when I first began to uh, study these issues my, myself I spent a very long time just trying to come to terms with the regulative principle probably a better part of a year of pretty consistent study and meditation and then after that probably another year on the psalmody question it took me a long time to get all of my questions answered but as I got toward the end there, I, I was pretty sure I had all of my questions answered. And yet I was in a church, serving in a church. The church had uh, mentioned that they were interested in calling me as a, um, as a uh, colleague and successor to the current pastor. So we were heavily invested where we were. And this is a hymn-singing church. And so I wasn't anxious to and begin the exclusive use of the, of the songs. But then something happened to me in God's providence. 
I was sick. I developed a cough. But I still had to preach. I don't know if you've ever done this. You know, if you have a cough and you start to sing, what happens? That cough erupts. You get warm and possibility of further talking is gone. So I didn't sing anything for about three weeks time to try to save my voice so I could get through sermons. And it was such a relief to my conscience that when that fourth week rolled around, I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to the singing of the hymns. So that Sabbath morning, I sprung it on my wife. I explained to her about the relief of my conscience and I told her I can't go back. But we have not talked about it, so I'm, I wouldn't make bold to try to tell you what to do. Uh, if you feel like it would be a sin to omit the hymns, then by all means continue. And we'll just try to talk about it um, over the course of time. It had taken me two years after all. I wasn't expecting her to come to terms with these things overnight. And she said, of course I don't think it's a sin to omit the hymns. After all, I find it difficult to imagine that the singing of Fanny Crosby is a biblical requirement. And I said to her, if you understand the regulative principle, that's actually the end of the argument. If it can be omitted, it must be omitted. If you understand the logic of it, if it can be omitted, that means it's not commanded. And if it's not commanded, then it is forbidden. But we must, uh, before we can understand anything about the service of song, we need a very strong command of the regulative principle and the logic of it. Or these things will always uh, remain in something of a, ha a haze vague, difficult to come to grips with. I, of course, am very far from the completion of my work. This is only the beginning. To describe the regulative principle is one thing. To prove it from the scriptures is another thing. And I will endeavor to do that. Uh, as you know, I'm going to be away next week, but in two weeks' time I will be back. And we'll consider the regulative principle even the issue that it's not simply an Old Testament thing back when God was strict, but it remains a New Testament thing as well. We'll consider that out of uh, Paul's epistle to the uh, Colossians. And we'll work our way back to the service of song and its history in the uh, church of the living God. But until we get there, do try to strengthen your conceptual grasp of the regulative principle of worship because everything that follows depends upon it. Let us pray together. Now our Father in heaven, we confess before thee that these things can be difficult for us to understand. And even though we have little confidence in ourselves as disciples, indeed we put no confidence in the flesh at all, 
Yet we have every confidence in the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct. Both to deliver sound doctrine. And to create in us a listening ear. An understanding mind. And a receiving heart. So as we engage in these studies and meditations. We do so trusting in our living Savior. To renew our mind our hearts, and our wills. So hear us and help us as we pray unto thee in his matchless name. Amen.